Welcome to today's VJ Hemonc podcast. In today's podcast, leading experts Paolo Gia, Susan O'Brien, Lydia Scarfo, and Othman Al-Swaf discuss the most exciting updates in the field of chronic lymphocytic leukemia from the EHA and ICML 2021 meetings, reviewing data from key clinical trials and research from second-generation BTKs and fixed-duration therapy. Welcome to everyone, and uh, today we are joining the VJ Hemonc event uh, where we are going to update you on the all the news that we heard at uh, EHA, ASCO, and ICML. So this long uh, Congress season uh, in spring 2021. And I'm happy to be joined by Sue O'Brien from uh, University of California, Irvine, uh, by Osman Al-Sawaf from uh, um, Köln, a uh, physician of the German Civil Study Group, and Lydia Scarfo from uh, um, Università Vita Salute San Raffaele in Milano. So thank you for joining. We can say that uh, after, I would say, uh, many months, uh, finally we saw very interesting results, very new results, uh, and uh, that are very promising also for our patients. So I would say that we can start from the longest follow-up that we ever seen uh, in CLL with the novel therapy. So I'm referring to the Resonate 2 update. Uh, Sue, what do you think about it? You know, I thought that data was quite impressive. I mean, just to remind the, the viewers, this was the original trial that led to the uh, frontline approval for ibrutinib as a therapy in CLL, the first small molecule to get that approval. And that, of course, was the randomized trial versus Clarambucil. And about two years ago, we had seen a five-year update that looked quite impressive at that time with no median progression-free survival in the ibrutinib arm. And now we have the seven-year update. Um, so the seven-year update showed that with a median follow-up of about six and a half years, the, uh, there was still no median progression-free survival, which is sort of astounding. And at that six and a half year mark, the progression-free survival was 61%. So not only are these remissions very durable, but it's quite impressive in the setting where we're actually not talking about too many complete responses. And we're certainly not really talking about MRD undetectability. And yet we have these incredibly durable remissions. Uh, the other very impressive point um, is that in marked contrast to chemotherapy regimens, where we know with every chemoimmunotherapy regimen we have, one of the most important predictors of progression-free survival is the mutation status, with the unmutated having a, a significantly shorter progression-free survival. In marked contrast to that, on this trial with now seven years of follow-up, there's absolutely no difference in outcome between the mutated and the unmutated. So this is a great treatment in general, but it's a particularly great treatment uh, for unmutated patients who, even if they got FCR up front, the best chemoimmunotherapy that we have, uh, would not still be in remission for the most part uh, six to seven years later, that's for sure. Yeah, and what also was impressive, and sometimes we forget about it, is that the quality and the depth of response, though you said that there, are, there is no undetectable MRD, most patients still have partial responses, but still, after seven years, we do see an increase in complete remissions also. So do you want to comment about that? Yeah, it's still a low number, but I, I have to say, I, I doubt that anybody's going back, say, at five years and doing bone marrow. So it does make me wonder if the CR rate, uh, you know, now it's just really an extension study so that we can get this long-term data uh, that's really just collecting progression, survival, that kind of thing. So. Um, I doubt people are going back and doing bone marrows on these people. It does make me wonder, you know, the CR rate's roughly about a third 
if in fact we did go back and do bone marrows on them, which is not going to happen, if many of those people that are now still in remission six, seven years out actually are in incomplete remission. Um, so no way to know, but it wouldn't surprise me. No, that's an interesting point. But indeed, it's also an important message for our patient because maybe one day we might think of stopping finally, at least some patients, at least those with the best response. And uh, so this is, of course, something that we should not do without data, but this is uh, something that should be explored in a study. So maybe those patients where we do, we go back and uh, do the bone marrow and we really get a, a complete remission, maybe we could randomize and, and, uh, and see it. So, yes, and you might, you, you know, the other advantage of that is that if at later on, later times they go on to progress off drug, you know, it raises the question like we're seeing in some of the other trials, could you go back and retreat if you stopped? So yes. would you actually potentially get more shelf life out of the drug if you did that rather than just continuing it to progression? Again, as you said, we have no data, but it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting question that, of course, will take many, many years before one could answer if we start the, the, the study today. So, but they, these are all interesting, important questions that actually are uh, refer me to uh, directly to Othman because uh, these are the questions that uh, the study that he led and presented again also at uh, EHA uh, are really asking. So about uh, fixed duration, about stopping treatment, about retreatment. And in particular, I'm referring to the CLL14 study, um, the, where, uh, that, uh, for which Otman presented the four-year update at EHA. And uh, I was particularly uh, impressed by the data on unmutated patients. So again, Otman, do you want to comment about it, please? Yeah, thanks, Paolo. Um, yeah, indeed, in CLL, we, so we showed some new data from CLL14 with, with longer and ongoing follow-up. So just as a reminder, the setup of CLL14, um, phase three randomized study for previously untreated CLL, elderly patients with coexisting conditions, and the patients were randomized to either 12 cycles of venesoclaxobinotuzumab or 12 cycles of chlorambucilobinotuzumab. And previously, we've seen um, a significant PFS advantage, as can be expected for um, and now with the longer follow-up, we are seeing that um, now all patients being off treatment for at least three years in both arms, um, we can see that uh, there is a sustained PFS benefit. So the overall four-year PFS rate was 74% with venetoclaxobinutuzumab compared to 35% with chlorambucilobinutuzumab. And as you um, just mentioned, Paolo, indeed, we do see that um, both groups, the mutated and the unmutated IGHV groups, benefit more from the venetoclax than from the chlorambucilobinutuzumab in terms of progression-free survival. Um, but what we do see uh, is, uh, in contrast to what has been reported in Resonate 2, that there is a difference in the outcome also for the unmutated IGHV group when treated with venetoclaxobinutuzumab, although their median PFS has not been really reached now and um, uh, uh, Although the numbers are very, the numbers at risk are very small at, at, at the four and five years, we do still see that they benefit um, substantially. So the median PFS would definitely be um, over 50 months in the unmutated IGHV group. And um, uh, I think what, what we clearly can see, however, is that IGHV is still prognostic for, for this group of patients. Um, and therefore, I think we can still understand them as, as, as high-risk patients in that sense, also in the context of targeted agents, because in other clinical studies like the Illuminate study, where ibrutinib was used in a 
patient population that was only somehow comparable to CLL14. So these were also elderly um, uh, and more or less unfit patients where, um, where we also see that the unmutated RGHV group with ibrutinib performs poorer than the mutated RGHV um, group. So I think at the end, the, uh, clinically speaking, we can still consider the unmutated RGHV group as, as a risk uh, group in terms of needing better treatment uh, strategies in, in the future. Yeah, and maybe we will be discussing uh, in a few minutes about the combination between uh, BTKIs and BCF2 inhibitors, but still, uh, the, the, the over uh, 50 months of uh, PFS in the unmutated patient with only 12 months of treatment, that's the important thing, really uh, allows to think and dream about the possibility of retreating the patient, and especially because they relapse after several months, after several years, it's very likely they will respond. So do you have already any data about this? How do you want to comment? Yeah, so we don't have uh, um, retreatment data after the, the frontline setting yet. So we are starting in a few months um, a phase two study um, that will recruit in, in several countries, including uh, several countries in Europe and the US, the, the so-called Preven-G study. And in this study, patients who have received 12 cycles of venetoclaxovinutuzumab, irrespective of the setting, so irrespective of whether in a study or outside, can be retreated with the same regimen with 12 cycles of venetoclaxovinutuzumab. Um, and uh, we do have um, some very reassuring data um, regarding the genetics and uh, the frequency of BCL2 mutations um, after the um, 12-cycle of venetoclaxomatuzumab. These data were shown by Eugen Tausch also at EHA and ICML, and we do see that in none of the relapses after venetoclaxomatuzumab is uh, there isn't any case of uh, even a subclonal um, BCL2 mutation in any patient that relapsed after venetoclaxomatuzumab, which suggests that the short treatment duration doesn't really um, um, express enough pressure to, to um, allow for the selection of these kind of clones, and which is quite reassuring for any kind of re retreatment strategy. So, um, yeah, I think potentially this, this will be a very viable option. And we've seen that also in the Murano study last year at ASH, where um, uh, there are several cases who, um, who have been successfully treated, retreated with venetoclax after um, uh, a relapse in the relapsed setting. So um, in a setting that is potentially might, uh, much more challenging than in the frontline setting. And so from the Murano, actually, we understood that, uh, of course, as we expected, that the time of relapse will count. So the, the closer to the end of the therapy, of course, the less uh, uh, likely you will respond. So in your study, the one that you mentioned to, for the retreatment, did you put any cutoff, any, uh, or are you enrolling everyone uh, failing uh, VG? Um, in terms of time uh, of yeah, no, we, we actually had very long discussions with it. So in, in, in this study, which is uh, also led by my, my colleague Kirsten Fisher and, and Matthew Davids in the US, who is was, um, coordinating the study from the US perspective, um, we had very long discussions um, about this. And uh, because all thresholds are to a certain extent arbitrary, similar to the era of chemomonotherapy, where until today, until today there is no uh, uh, consensus on whether two or three years is considered an early relapse. Uh, and similarly, of course, for venetoclaxomatuzumab, we have even less data. But what we said is that the patient should have responded at least for one year okay. um, after venetoclaxomatuzumab. Practically speaking, we, uh, we don't have any 
real disease progressions in CLL14 after one year um, of treatment anyway. So this is more um, a formal cutoff. But what we said is that patients who relapse between one and two years, that these would not be treated for just 12 cycles, but for 24 cycles of venetoclax, whereas the late relapses will be treated again with, with 12 cycles um, fixed duration. Um, although we leave it a little bit up to the investigator at the end in, in cases where for instance, in case of deletion 17P and so on, we know that many investigators would like to continue treatment, particularly in the MRD-positive patients. So we leave that option a little bit open in this phase two setting. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And uh, um, what about, because you said that nobody really relapsed or progressed or needed therapy within one year after the end of therapy. What about the P53 patient, those with the P53 aberration that we do... We, we saw, uh, you confirmed that indeed they have, they are progressing a little bit earlier than the other patients. Yeah, indeed. So um, we do see that the, the, uh, TB53 is highly prognostic um, in terms of progression-free survival, also in the context of venetoclastomilituzumab. However, we do see that the median PFS is still almost four years. So um, we still, uh, similar to what you suggested with, with the unmutated RGHV group, we clearly see that the outcome is, 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 is poorer for, for these compared to TP53 unaberrated status, but still with a 12-cycle treatment, we are seeing uh, um, this substantial median progression-free survival, which again, where we have the option of, of retreating the patients, particularly again, if I may refer to Eugen Taur's analysis, we don't see an, an expansion of the TP53 clone um, in, in, in patients who have TP53 aberrations, which again suggests that somehow this short treatment duration is quite favorable in terms of the selection pressure that we induce by our treatment. Oh, that's very reassuring in terms of clonal evolution. So uh, these, uh, the, the two studies that we mentioned, there were updates. So uh, we knew about them. It's always reassuring to see long-term data. But what has been really impressive this year is that we saw uh, two head-to-head -head studies comparing the, the BTK inhibitor. So we don't have anymore only one BTK inhibitor um, at Brutini. We have uh, now the so-called second generation uh, BTK inhibitors, uh, acalabrutini and tranobrutini. Indeed, we, uh, both studies have been presented at THA comparing uh, acala uh, in the Elevate RR and uh, or tranobrutini in the Alpine study with ibrutini uh, in head-to-head -head comparison. So, Lydia, which one did you was did impress you more more, and uh, what are they about? Uh, they, I, I say they are both quite uh, impressive. Though the uh, follow-up in the Alpine study is shorter, so probably we have to wait longer to uh, gain more uh, solid conclusion. But uh, uh, in the um, uh, Elevate RR study, uh, the second-generation BTK inhibitor acalabrutinib was compared in a head-to-head -head comparison with ibrutinib in so-called high-risk patients with CLL that at the time of study design were defined based on the presence of 11Q deletion or 17P deletion. Uh, and um, the study is based on a non-inferiority de design. So uh, the first, uh, let's say, result is based on the fact that uh, acalabrutinib is non-inferior uh, to ibrutinib in terms of progression-free survival in this category of patients. Uh, but as we all know, in the in clinical practice, uh, probably the, the, the most relevant issue in the management of patients with CLL on BTK inhibitor is the uh, 
the long-term management of adverse events. And uh, in this category of patients, of course, being elderly patients with comorbidities, uh, uh, the cardiovascular adverse events are of interest. Um, and uh, in the uh, analysis of the uh, Elevate R uh, study, uh, calabrutinib show to be associated with a, a lower rate of uh, atrial fibrillation uh, and hypertension. And these are two of the most frequent adverse events uh, that uh, have been previously associated with uh, ibrutinib treatment. So in terms at least of cardiovascular toxicity, actually a calabrutinib uh, seems uh, uh, to have a better profile uh, in this uh, setting. Um, and the same for the uh, occurrence of atrial fibrillation was also confirmed in the Alpine study uh, comparing zanubrutinib, uh, that is also a second generation BTK inhibitor, uh, with ibrutinib in the relapsed refractory setting. So the population is not exactly the same in the sense that in the Alpine they did not select for uh, high-risk uh, cytogenetic, uh, let's say. Uh, but still, the um, atrial fibrillation among the other toxicity uh, seems to be lower in the zanobrutinib uh, arm. Um, so uh, actually, in, in Europe, uh, uh, and in Italy in particular, we do not have yet experience uh, with uh, uh, these two drugs, calabrutinib and zanobrutinib, outside clinical trials. Uh, probably uh, in US, they have more experience, uh, especially for uh, with the calabrutinib they have used since uh, oh. a long Dr. time. Lydia wants to ask you a question, Sue. So uh, what is your experience? Of course, you had uh, access to calabrutinib and also zanobrutinib. And uh, what is your experience? Do you see... Uh, um, do you see the same thing that we saw in the clinical studies? Uh, uh, how do, what do you think about the neutropenia, for example, which appears to be a side effect with xanobrutin that is not so frequent with the other molecules? Right. I actually have no personal experience with xanobrutinib. I have pretty uh, a good experience with acalabrutinib. So it's a can't really comment from my own personal perspective on the Zanobrutin. We have also to, to remind the, the audience that Zanobrutin is approved for mantle cell lymphoma, not for CLL right. in, in the US. Right. That's the other reason why. Well. Right. Um, so the acalabrutinib, it's interesting. Uh, as Lydia said, the incidence of hypertension and uh, AFib appear to be less. Um, but what I also find is that some of the uh, side effects that are quite annoying to patients, but never rise to the level of grade three or four, for the most part, um, are reduced with acalabrutinib. So for example, mouth sores, uh, cramps, which are quite common with ibrutinib, cramps in the hands or cramps in the feet, um, diarrhea we already know about, uh, arthralgias. Um, I feel from my own personal experience that those are all less common with acalabrutinib. And again, they're not, they don't rise to the level of SAEs, but they're very annoying to the patients. And particularly if the patient thinks, oh, I'm going to be on this drug for, for many years and I'm going to have to deal with this. Um, I think they're less with acalab. The one side effect, of course, we know that is more frequent in particular to acalabrutinib is the headache. I don't know, maybe you have an idea, Paolo, if there's any explanation for uh, what causes the headache with acala, but I will say that it tends to be mild. It often responds to pretty much anything, caffeine, uh, aspirin, acetaminophen, and it generally is very short-lived. So my experience within a few weeks, it's gone. Uh, but it's an interesting toxicity because it's not one we've really seen 
uh, with ibrutinib and or with xanabrutinib. And we know that both the second generation uh, drugs have lower IC50s against some of the other off-target kinases that we feel are actually responsible for many of the side effects with ibrutinib as opposed to direct inhibition of BTK. So I don't know if anybody in the group is aware of any potential explanations for that headache, but it doesn't seem to be a major uh, problem. Well, it's, not, it's not a major issue, I would say, really also in the study, the median uh, uh, of resolution of a, a headache is three weeks, I think. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, also with zanobrutinib, you do see a certain percentage of patients, not so high as with the calabrutin, but still some patients who have uh, uh, suffered from uh, this headache, which is, uh, as we said, transient and mild, typically. Um, the, the... If I may just, uh, my, my, let's say what is puzzling me at this point is how do you select patients for a calabrutinib instead of ibrutinib? I mean, are in general uh, cardiovascular comorbidities uh, uh, a key point to select uh, one BTK inhibitor, uh, uh, to favor one BTK uh, inhibitor uh, compared to the other? So, I mean, I think it could be, yes. Um... The other, you know, when I talk to patients about the options, uh, I do mention the decrease in the hypertension and um, uh, AFib, uh, but it's also fair to point out that if the AFib rate with uh, aggregate rate with ibrutinib is 10 to 14%, that means the vast majority of people that get treated with that drug are in fact not going to have AFib and do quite well. Um, so what, so when I talk to the patients, one of the things I, I mentioned in, in, fa in favor of ACALA is the cardiovascular toxicity. One of the things I mentioned in favor of ibrutinib is A, the very long-term follow-up. And in fact, in the relapse setting, we had the recent publication of eight to nine year follow-up in relapse with no new late safety signals. And I also mentioned that that's the only drug that's been compared to what I think most of us would consider more effective chemoimmunotherapy in a randomized trial, right? So that's the only drug ibrutinib that's been randomized against BR and FCR, and in both cases showed significantly better progression-free survival, where the randomizations of ACALA and venetoclax um, abinutuzumab have been against chlorambucil. Um, so I, that's another point that I bring up. It may or may not be important to the patient, but I think that's something that I do point out. And what we can also say, having so many drugs, we have really to, to play well all our cards. As you said, a minority of patients will develop atrial fibrillation, so one may start safely abrutting it, and maybe we can become spoiled, and the patient who will develop atrial fibrillation, you might shift to the other drug, and maybe will resolve, uh, will resolve or will not occur again. So really trying to keep the patient the longest time possible on the same class of drugs before switching, for example, then to a BCA2 inhibitor. Uh, Osman, do you want to add anything? Do you have experience in the real world, let's say, with ACALA in Germany? Um, not in the real world, only in, in clinical studies, and uh, for Zanobrutinib also only in clinical studies, and they're particularly uh, in, a, in a little bit different setting in patients with Richter's transformation. And there it seems to be quite, although it's difficult because Richter's transformation, uh, patients with Richter's transformation, of course, often have a different clinical profile, so to speak, in terms of their fitness and, and their symptoms and so on. They are often, of course, um, have a much heavier symptom burden than your standard CLL patient. But um, I think it's, it's from, from, from my experience, very well tolerated and, uh, and 
very similar to acalabrutinib, rarely any real cardiospecific toxicities, although we should also appreciate from the, the tables that we've seen at ESCO and the EHA and ICML that it seems to be that these are overall relative reductions of the risk. So if you look at the rates of bleedings, they are significantly less frequent with acalabrutinib, but they are still much higher than we would expect in chemo-treated patients. So I think the rate of hemorrhages was around 35% in the elevate RR, so much less than the, I think the or 55% with ibrutinib, but still, I think this is clinically relevant. If you have a patient that is on, I don't know, double platelet inhibition after a stent or so, I think acalabrutinib mm -hmm. still wouldn't be the best option for, for, the, for the patient. In terms of atrial fibrillation, it's a little bit difficult to say. If you look at the data from the Elevate TN study that were also shown um, at the summer congresses in an update, you do see, if you look at the atrial fibrillation rate, it seems to be slightly higher than in the chlorambosilobinutuzumab arm. So I think there is still somehow, to a certain degree, uh, a, a class effect of BTK inhibitors that hasn't been completely overcome also with the second generation BTK inhibitors. And for that matter, I think with xanobrutinib, it seems that the only toxicity that is statistically less frequent with xanobrutinib is the atrial fibrillation, because the rate of bleeding events and hypertension and so on seems to be very comparable to ibrutinib. So I think um, as uh, I think um, uh, um, Sue put it perfectly in saying that the longest follow-up that we have is for ibrutinib, both in terms of efficacy and toxicity. And therefore, I think for a patient that doesn't really fall in any of these risk categories, um, I think it's still fair to start a patient uh, with ibrutinib. And for me, clinically, the more pressing um, factor that, that decides uh, on what kind of treatment strategy to choose is probably more the question of fixed duration and continuous of high risk or low risk. I think these are probably more the factors that are still guiding um, the, the decision, at least, uh, at least to me. Oh, and with that comment, I, then I'm happy to now introduce the topic of uh, fixed duration, but uh, again with ibrutinib involved in the combination with BCF2. So that's again the other piece of news that uh, we all heard uh, at ASCO, EHA, ICML. So the combination, fixed duration uh, between ibrutinib and uh, uh, venetoclax, and this has been tested in two different studies, uh, a phase two study for young patients with CLL, first line, of course, uh, the captivate study, and uh, the fixed duration portion of the captivate study, and uh, also in the elderly in a randomized phase three study. <phone rings> comparing ibrutinib plus venetoclax uh, uh, versus uh, chlorambucil plus uh, uh, obinutuzumab. So, Sue, do you want to start commenting on this? And then we will go around the table. And, because this is the future, I would say. Sure. Uh, actually, I, I'll just point out the very first combination, then the only one that's been published was actually done by MD Anderson. So that was exactly, at least for the first 15 months, the exact same design as, as captivating, meaning... It was a three-month lead-in with ibrutinib, and now we're seeing with all of the small molecule combination trials, um, plus or minus antibody, this three-month or two-month lead-in, of course, which is done to try and debulk the patient and reduce the risk for tumor lysis once the venetoclax starts. Um, and what's interesting is that the MD Anderson data and the Captivate data are basically identical, which is good because they're up until 12 months, the exact same regimen, meaning three months lead in with ibrutinib, no antibody, and then 12 months of the combination producing very high MRD undetectability rates uh, up around high 70, 77%. Um, and, the, and of course, uh, then potentially the opportunity to have fixed duration treatment. We saw with the Captivate, the fixed duration cohort 
We had previously seen the, uh, the other cohort earlier in the, in the trial, which was not fixed duration. In that uh, cohort at 15 months, there's a randomization based on whether they're MRD positive or negative. But again, very comforting to know that in the fixed duration cohort who got exactly the same treatment as the prior cohort for the first 15 months, the data, all the data across the three, three trials looks significant. Interestingly, in GLOW, it was not quite as impressive with lower rates of MRD undetectability. Now you pointed out very right, correctly, that the Captivate study, the MD Anderson study wasn't uh, limited by age, but the Captivate study were young patients because all of those patients had to be under the age of 70, which for CLL is actually quite young. Um, so in the GLOW study, it's a bit different. So, you know, do you think, or I would rec uh, welcome anybody's comments, maybe Lydia could comment what she thinks. Um, do, you, do we think that age could account for that? Um, if everybody's getting the same therapy or in the GLOW trial, you know, were more people stopping therapy or dose reducing? I'm not quite sure why age might account for the differences, but I believe in the GLOW trial, the MRD undetectability was down in the 50s. So lower than Captivate, lower than the MD Anderson data. You have any thoughts on that, Lydia? Oh, that's uh, actually a very good point. I say that in general, in terms of tolerance, it seems that the, this combination is quite well tolerated, meaning that we are seeing the adverse events of ibrutinib and the adverse events of venetoclax, but not uh, an exponential increase in the uh, adverse events related to the combination. Probably uh, considering that this is a fixed duration uh, regimen, the dose intensity, let's say, the uh, keeping the drug together for the right amount of time is crucial to obtain a deep response and to, to stop safely treatment. So um, I, I, I do not have in mind the details, but my main issue, uh, my main hypothesis is that, that actually uh, elderly patient could have received a, a lower um, dose of the combination drug and uh, have interrupted treatment earlier uh, or uh, discontinued at least one of the two drugs for uh, uh, tolerability issues. That, that could be an explanation. Indeed, 25% around the patient uh, did not complete the, the, the 15 cycles of treatment. But what I want also to uh, comment is what I was impressed in this study, especially in the Captivate, but also in the GLOW, is the durability of the response. So despite and regardless achieving undetectable MRD, still the PFS curves, the disease-free survival curve are very flat. So this is something that, Othman, you also uh, started showing in the CLL14. So maybe with venetoclax in the game, we are somehow modifying the natural history of the disease. So we are somehow changing or modifying the clone so that proliferate less or, I don't know, expand less. It takes longer time, even if we don't really bring it to a low uh, level. Uh, how, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair point. And of course, it's a little bit too early for both regimens, the obinutuzumab combination and the arutinib combination to say anything about that, particularly because in the context of chemomonotherapy with FCR and the mutated idea 3 status, we do actually also see OS different, overall survival differences and so on. And therefore, I think it's uh, easier to say that we are 
by the addition of CD20 antibodies have been able to change the history, so to speak, the natural history of the disease. Whether we are that far with venetoclax, I'm not sure yet. It, we have some signals that we discussed at the summer congresses in terms of clonal growth and so on. That seems to be a little bit different between the BCL2 targeted treatment and against the chemomonotherapy. How much this also um, happens in in a combination of venetoclax and ibrutinib, we don't know as of yet. But um, but I think, as, as you say, I think efficacy-wise, the time-to-event data are very reassuring, also from the GLOW study, that this is also a very feasible treatment option um, for, for, the, for elderly and unfit patients. Of course, I think something that I found striking in the Captivate study was the relative, although the adverse events were, as, as Lydia was, was just alluding to, uh, the frequency was quite or the, the serious adverse events and so on were relatively rare and, and the treatment was well tolerated. What I noticed was the frequency of diarrhea in 60% of the cases in the Captivate study. Um, they were all grade one and grade two, but I mean, it's, if based on the definitions of grade two, is, I think this would be roughly five or six diarrhea per the bowel movements per day, which from a clinical perspective for the patient is, 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 is uh, quite heavy. And, uh, and, and if you tell him this is only low grade, they would, I, I probably disagree with you. Um, and uh, I think this is, might be actually an, an additive toxicity because we also see in CLL14 that the addition of venetoclax to the obinutuzumab actually then starts the higher rates of frequency. So we have diarrhea both with BCL2 inhibitors and with BTK inhibitors, and therefore maybe this combination in this regard might actually be can be maybe challenging, uh, but um, the GLOW study didn't uh, have such a high rate, so um, we need to see, I think, longer follow-up data to better understand this. Yeah, well, probably again, we are, we are lucky to be in this period in which we have many options, and probably in the future we will really be picking the best for our patients. So maybe from what you said during this half hour, we are going to the conclusion, is that maybe for, for mutated patients, we can be happy with VG, with the fixed duration treatment, very nice responses, prolonged responses. We can, we can use monotherapy in the elderly patient and they can continue for, for many years without really having to come to the hospital, get infused, infused with anything. And maybe the IV will be the, the good option for unmutated patient, young patient who can tolerate it, but still have a fixed duration treatment. So we will see in the future, but before closing, I want to give the word to Lydia, who presented the work that can be somehow a compromise between all these continuous therapy, fixed duration, which combinations, uh, how many drugs, and that's the improved study uh, to whom I'm referring. So Lydia, do you want to, in 30 seconds, uh, summarize your study? Uh, yes, we presented actually an update uh, of the uh, of our study in the relapsed refractory setting, where we mm, chose a different approach, meaning that we started with uh, in comparison to many other trials currently ongoing. So we started treatment with venetoclax single agents because venetoclax uh, alone is able to obtain uh, undetectable minimal residual disease in a quite relevant proportion of patients, and then added. 
uh, brutinib only in, in those who did not achieve uh, undetectable minimal residual disease uh, after 12 months of venetoclax monotherapy. And um, by monitoring uh, MRD status over treatment, uh, we were then able to stop uh, the combination of ibrutinib and venetoclax in more than uh, 80% of cases uh, because they reached the uh, undetectable minimal residual disease status. So I dare say we are all agree that the one size fits all approach uh, can be improved and uh, we can uh, design different type of studies. This is actually increasing the intensity of treatment uh, uh, by adding additional drugs uh, uh, only in patients uh, who have disease that is who have a disease that is not responsive to monotherapy or uh, uh, less intensive treatment, let's say. And indeed, also those few patients who did not achieve undetectable MRD, either way, they continued their brutinib uh, as continuous therapy. So really identifying those who must continue uh, indefinitely the therapy because they know that they will not reach any other response. So thank you very much. The time passed by very fast as usual when you are enjoying. So I thank you uh, again for your insightful information, discussion and opinion. And uh, uh, thank you for joining and thank you the audience for staying with us. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemoc to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. Visit VJHemoc.com for cutting-edge updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of all the latest news in the field of CLL. Be sure to subscribe to VJHemoc podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.